Hey, faithful listener. Thanks for tuning in to the P40 Ministries daily podcast. This podcast is dedicated to helping you grow spiritually so you can grow personally. Let's grow together by building a consistent Bible reading routine. This is Jen, your host. And today we will be discussing the book of Mark. Good morning, friends and faithful listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to the P40 Ministries podcast on this beautiful Thursday morning. Actually, I have a guest on the podcast today who I'm very excited to introduce, and this is Jay Warner Wallace. And he has actually written a book that I found very fascinating called Person of Interest. And he is here to actually talk about that book a little bit today and kind of how he came to the conclusion of some of the stuff that he writes about. Jim, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and uh, let people know who you are. Uh, my name is Jim Wallace, and I actually um, and I'm really delighted to join you. I know you're working through Mark, and you've got a section of scripture where we're talking about the authority of Jesus, and that was a, a big question for me um, as a, a new, new investigator of the claims of. I was about 35 when I first got interested in opening the Gospel of Mark, and it, Mark was one of those places that I started because, um, I, first of all, it was short, <laughs> so I thought <laughs> I'm not going to waste a lot of time on this if I don't need to. If I got through Mark, I didn't feel like it was worth pursuing. I would just stop. Um, now, I ultimately read all the Gospels, but um, I just wasn't somebody who was raised in an environment where um, I had any, not access, but just any interest, right? I, my parents weren't Christians. We didn't go to church. I didn't know anybody who went to church. Uh, my wife and I have been together about 18 years by the time we entered that first church. And I just really didn't, we didn't own a Bible. I went out and bought one. And it does all come down to authority, right? I mean, this this is, everyone has got claims. There are so many different religious groups. Uh, most of whom are trusting in the authority of something or someone. Mm -hmm. Either they're trusting in the authority of their prophet, of their religious leader, or of their scripture. And um, so I just needed to know, is this something worth trusting? And that's what got me started. I just applied the same process you would apply to any cold case. I my, Most of my specialty working in investigations in Los Angeles County as a detective, I was working cold cases. I uh, did a lot of that for a lot of years, and there are some principles that you would use to determine, for example, if a witness is reliable. Uh, how do you put together a cumulative case? Uh, how do you assess evidence and make proper proper inferences from evidence? This is really the approach I took as I was reading through the Gospels for the first time. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy that we're getting a chance to talk a little bit about the authority of Jesus and really the authority of Scripture as it describes what Jesus taught. Yeah, that's great. And that's a really good segue into what we're going to talk about today. But one other thing I want to uh, mention is that Jim is actually an illustrator as well. He made some of those illustrations in that book. And I was like, I was actually blown away by them. I'm also an illustrator a little bit, a little bit, but <laughs> here and there. But I was looking at the drawings in person of interest. And I'm like, these are really good. So I went to the front of the book to see who who drew them. And it was you. <laughs> Yeah. So I, my, I, before I became a detective, I, I came in late. I was about 27. A lot of us start in our you know really early 20s. You can become a police officer at 21. Uh, but I was getting, I had a bachelor's degree in design and then a master's degree in architecture. And that's, then I went from architecture to law enforcement. 
and um, for a lot of years was frustrated that I didn't have a, a way to exercise. You know, early on, I think while I was on training, they would call me out to do all of the, you know, accidents and, and uh, uh, homicide drawings. So I was doing homicide drawings of the crime scenes like years before I ever was assigned these cases as an investigator. I was just a police officer who was on duty and they would say, hey, where's Wallace? Call Wallace out. We need him to draw this. And I would come out and draw it. Often I would be asked to make the model for court. You know, I think I did a couple of those where I had to reconstruct a foam core model because they knew I could do that. You know, I could, I could get the plans uh, and reconstruct the model of the room mm-hmm. and then uh, they could use it in a, in a jury trial. So a lot of those skills were pressed in, but here in these books, you know, I get a chance to illustrate them. And one thing about person of interest is we wanted it to be so accessible and be such a quick read that, and we wanted to cover a lot of material in a short period of time that I knew that uh, one way to do that was to make it as visual as possible. So I asked the publisher to give me a couple of years to build the stage presentations for this book and, and to give them publicly so I could learn what works in front of a jury uh, and then write a book from those stage presentations. And they, that's what they did, but the stage presentations are all highly visual. So I had to then go back and illustrate the book with the stuff I was using in front of audiences. And that ended up being about 400 illustrations that are in that book now. Mm -hmm. That is super cool. And I I really love that as somebody who appreciates art a little bit. And uh, even even the chapter you had about um, Jesus influencing artists, I thought that was that was really cool. But let's go ahead and talk about Mark chapter 11 here verses 27 through 33. I usually um, read out of the W.E.B. version, but I'm actually switching over to the NIV today specifically for this because they they say the word authority and I like that word. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about here. So let's go ahead and read this. Grab your cup of coffee and let's go ahead and jump right in. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So like I said, great segue into that kind of your book actually talks about a little bit about like Jesus's authority throughout the ages a little bit. And, and I think that is honestly a really, really good segue into person of interest. And so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you came to the conclusion of who Jesus is. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to identity, right? This is when I mean, we're talking about authority. Who, who, who are you? Who are you to say these things? Um, I mean, this still happens, right? We, we've been got, we've gone through now two years, um, nearly two years of COVID, um, and trying to figure out like wh- what are the authorities that we can trust on any given set of issues, right? And and this is really the challenge mm-hmm. is is trying to figure out who is authoritative. Um, and for me, the question was, why would anyone think that Jesus was authoritative? I mean, or that Christian scripture or Jewish scripture was any more authoritative than any other set of scriptures that are out there, some of which are far more ancient. 
than in Christian scriptures, at least. You know, the Buddhist uh, writings are going to precede Jesus, at least the life of Buddha. Um, Hindu writings, I mean, there's lots of mythological, uh, I don't even have a chapter of this in the book, that precede Jesus. And and these these systems that the ancients, many different ancient people groups believe were true. Um, you can see why you would challenge the now here this is different what the Jews are doing here right because it turns out that even when things are obvious there are what there are reasons why you might deny a truth claim that have nothing to do with rational authority they have everything to do with whether or not you volitionally want to submit to that authority right so so that's a lot of what we're seeing here mm-hmm. in this passage it seems to me is that the, that they they he knows that they know that the where the authority is grounded they just are afraid to say it they don't want to say it because then they'd have to say they were wrong they'd have to say that we willfully denied mm-hmm. something that was from god and they're not about to say that uh, and even that is an act of volition so so a lot of it for me was trying to figure out, well, okay, so so if Jesus is is God, if the resurrection is true, and he is God incarnate, then that does change his authority. That actually gives him the authority to say some things now that, that for example, I always say that I wrote a whole book called Cold Case Christianity, where I was testing the reliability of the Christian scriptures. You could not write that kind of book about the Jewish scriptures because those documents are just so old that you cannot do the kind of investigation you can on Christian documents. So people will ask me, well, look, you might be able to test the Christian documents to see if they're telling you something that's reliable and true about Jesus. But what do you do with someone like like these miracles in the Old Testament, like Jonah and and all these crazy claims of the Old Testament. Well, Jesus referred to those claims as though they were true. And if you if the resurrection occurred, well, now Jesus comes at this from an entirely different kind of authority, right? Because when you rise out of the grave, you're different than just the guy next door. And I have a tendency to listen to people who rise out of the grave. So, so that's because you have a different kind of authority. So it turns out that determining who Jesus mm-hmm. is really is all about determining what his authority is. And so, so in the end, if we're now we're two thousand years behind the fact, um, what do we do? Uh, if you don't even trust the New Testament, that's really where I was as a new believer, as a new investigator, rather, is that I was not somebody who trusted um, the, the, the the scriptures yet. That took some time for me to investigate the claims of the scriptures. But it turns out that even if every New Testament was utterly destroyed, you would still be able to reconstruct the truth about Jesus just from the fuse and fallout of history. We do this in every nobody murder where we have no evidence of a murder. We just have a person who went missing. And 20 years later, we realize that this is a murder and we open the case up. And now we've got no evidence from a crime scene. We have no body. Yet we know that something happened on the day that person went missing. And so how do we investigate that? Well, we, I mean, that's like a bomb went off on that day, but every bomb is preceded by a fuse and followed by all kinds of shrapnel in the blast radius. We can actually determine what happened on the day of the missing by simply examining the fuse and the fallout that precede and follow the day that that person went missing. Same thing can happen here. If you don't trust it, you've got any uh, evidence you can you can trust in the New Testament. Okay, fine. Just for sake of argument, we can still investigate the fuse and fallout of history and determine the exact same claims are true. Look, who's had an impact like Jesus has on history? If you think there is somebody, and I've heard people say, well, look, can't fictional characters have this kind of impact? Like, okay, can you tell me who? Who, I think what part of it is, is that people don't realize the kind of impact we're talking about. They think that um, that this is, you know, they don't realize that the things that matter most to atheists, which are art, uh, literature, music, education, science, 
those things are utterly dependent upon the worldview inaugurated by Jesus and the work of his followers, because the entire, for example, science, every major discipline in the sciences was founded by a Christ follower. And if you don't think that's true, do the, do the work, do the history. You'll see that, yeah, you can trace it all back to Christ followers who were embodying. I, I was just going to say, I actually, um, yeah. I researched that. And I thought that was super cool when you said yes. um, the sciences, because my husband is a, uh, he's a metrologist, which is. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So he's a metrologist. So I actually looked that up and I was like, wow, even like a, a obscure science like metrology had a Christian foundation. So I thought that was kind of funny, but sorry for interrupting you. Yeah. There. Yes. Isn't that crazy? No, no, we, and we thought that was crazy too. And I, I had a research assistant. We were just—I just wanted to show the amazing impact that Jesus had on, on science. And I had written, you know, blog articles about this over the years when I first investigated it. But they were just blog articles, right? They were not as deep as this. And so I wanted to get a research assistant to go through all of history. Now that's hard to do because there aren't a lot of printed volumes of research on this topic. So we had to kind of do it kind of from the ground up and some of it's going to be in books a lot of it's going to be in online resources which are almost always slanted against believers so like if you're researching a you have a suspicion for whatever reason that joe smith uh, who who founded this particular branch of science might have been a jesus follower well if you do the research more than likely his christian identity has been scrubbed from any online resource so how do you determine this right so so i know that we're underestimating the number of christians who were responsible but as we started to investigate these scientists we realized wow you know uh, we keep on hearing this expression father of and I said, ah, oh, we need to go back and look at all of them again. And so my assistant wasn't all that happy about that, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, the idea was to go back and try to look at the expression father of. And then you determine that, well, this guy's not just a chemist. Uh, he was the father of a certain discipline within chemistry or the father of modern chemistry. And so I made a list of all the people who allegedly are fathers of disciplines based on the rather secular resources we were using that typically scrub those kinds of identities. That's why I say this is an underestimation for sure. And what you discover is that list I have in the book of all of those disciplines of, of the sciences in which there is a, a, a an initiator who was a Christ follower. And what's interesting about those Christ followers is that most of them wrote personal writings and letters to friends about Jesus. And if all you had were the personal writings of, of, of the founders of all the major scientific disciplines, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus, what he said, what he did. They quote from scripture, the narrative of his story, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection. All of these things can be reconstructed. You'd have to destroy the entire history of modern science in order to wipe the name of Jesus off the planet. You couldn't just destroy the New Testament. It wouldn't be enough. And that's the whole point. If, if you can find Jesus in these weird nooks mm -hmm. and crannies, right? You can find him on the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world. As a matter of fact, I didn't talk about this in the book, but I researched the top 100 universities and about 75 to 80, depending on which list you look at, of the top 100 universities in the day of today in the world are were founded by Christians. And usually for Christian purposes, even though today they probably aren't even acknowledging Jesus on those campuses, but their original buildings still exist. And on those buildings, there are the images of Jesus of Nazareth. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the campuses and the charters 
of the top 15 universities in the world today. Why? Because modern universities, as we know them, are a Christian invention. I mean, the ancients had ways of educating themselves, but the university, as you think of it today, in which there's a, you know, a body of students who come to a, 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 a resident faculty that, that teach in certain courses of instruction that graduate year to year and eventually assign a diploma for completion, that notion is birthed in three modern universities that Christ followers created at, at, at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. And from those universities, like 24 or so daughter universities emerged. And from those daughter universities, the scientific revolution occurred. So, so it's just really hard to deny the role. So from the writings of scientists, from the campuses of universities, you can re you have to destroy all those things in order to get rid of the message uh, of Jesus's life and ministry. That's the kind of, now, by the way, that kind of impact is only because of the authority he does have. In other words, if you can find another ancient Jewish sage from any aspect, any part of the, of the Roman Empire, in the entire history of the Roman Empire, who's had that kind of impact, tell me who it is. And because you can't, and the reason why you can't is because that person didn't have any authority. So Jesus, it turns out, history only confirmed what's in the Gospel of Mark, that the, the Jewish leadership at the time didn't, and they wrote a lot. I have a chapter in this book about the, the literature fallout, all the impact that Jesus had on literature. It's not as though ancient Jews didn't write disparagingly about Jesus. They wrote about him all the time. But in order to complain about his miracles, they had to first admit that he was working miracles. So you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the complaints of non-Christians in the first three centuries, many of whom were Jewish. So you're going to have a hard time escaping the authority of Jesus if, in fact, you believe, as you rightly should, that when someone has this kind of authority, he leaves a mark. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He left that mm -hmm. mark. I think that's awesome. And one thing that you didn't mention in the book, and because I'm a podcaster, I thought of this, is the amount of Christian podcasts out there. <laughs> and so I looked that up, and there's millions. There's millions out yes. there. No, it's true. And so what I've tried to do is to, is to, I mean, you can do a lot more. Like, for example, I didn't really talk much about, uh, although medicine is an aspect of science, and I, I didn't talk with, though, about, about care of, of the, uh, this, the people who are displaced or um, disadvantaged or ill, or, um, but, but, but you could, you, there's much more that you could cover. What I tried to do is to, um, is to show that, that really this is foundational kind of impact. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so what, and, and also, if you think about it, um, a, a podcasts are a really great example, and it, it would have probably been in the media kind of a section of the book. I did talk, for example, about the impact he's had on movies and how we've communicated Jesus to others, but, but yeah, this, the kind of a swell of, of media, whether it be, um, uh, podcasts or videos or any other kind of content is pretty remarkable. But what's so interesting is the foundational way in which Jesus and his followers shaped education and science and literature and music for a lot of the inventions that we take for granted, the foundation of harmonies, of instruments, of musical notation. These things were not available before Christ followers in the context of religious music created these, these things that we now use in a secular way, but major and minor scales. If you go back and look at the history of music, you'll find that, that there's a Christ follower at every significant turn. And that this, this well, think about it this way. What is the one part of our culture, the one segment of our culture that on a weekly basis gets up in front of a live audience and sings songs? 
Okay, that's the church. I mean, it's that not so, but don't be surprised that there's an entire rich body of music that is born out of that weekly. This is a worldview that regularly meets to sing. And that's very unusual within the context of humans. If you're not somebody who goes to church every week, you're probably not engaged in that kind of musical experience on a weekly basis. You might be, but this is a worldview that makes it part of their DNA. And so why unsurprisingly, uh, every I've looked at, for example, the top 100 recording artists of the last 100 years, and on three different lists, I assembled about 150 artists, depending on the list that gives you the, the top 100. And of those 150 artists, all but two had sung songs about Jesus, many of which are disparaging, but, but you, it either inspires you or infuriates you, but he's going to somehow end up in your music. And that's, that can't be said of anyone else in history. Nobody else has had that kind of impact on music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating list as well. But one question I want to ask you. So the Pharisees here, they uh, didn't want to admit about Jesus's authority. So how did it feel when you finally got to that place where you were kind of like maybe moving from atheism into a belief of Jesus? You know, um, and it's, this is just my, who I am, I guess, uh, because it took so long for me to, to make that shift. It, 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 I didn't like people always say, what was the, what was the one thing? What was the aha moment? What was that epiphany? What was that? Cause those kinds of things are usually happen as you turn a corner, right? As you just suddenly your eyes are open. And, and it was, it, for me, it was a very long process of having to remove the barriers that stood between me and the gospel that I had constructed that um, I needed to deconstruct. And so I, as I examined scripture and all of this evidence, I was lucky enough at that, well, it's got ordained, I'm sure that I, at the time I was working in an assignment that I spent a lot of hours just killing time in a car because we were working as a surveillance team. And we were you know, watching, watching these guys who had done these either murders or robberies or whatever. And so I was spending time in the car. I had probably a good nine months where I had 40 to 60 hours a week to study between my off days, the mornings before my shift, or 12 hours in a car. Lots of times where people aren't, aren't, aren't moving. So you're just sitting on a perimeter waiting for some bad guy to start moving. Um, so we, I had a lot of time. And the, back in those days, we didn't have any digital media. You know, I didn't have a phone. There were no cell phones. We all had pagers and a bag of quarters to call each other at, at pay phones. <laughs> And, uh, you know, people were reading magazines, they would bring magazines and things to read, there wasn't any way to pass the time. Um, I had just all kinds of books that I brought into my car, and I had them stacked up in the passenger seat. And I was just, just, just devouring the stuff that I write about in my books today. So because that process took some time, it, it was uh, a kind of a gradual surrender, until I finally got to a point. That's the way I think most cumulative cases are. Like at some point, you you if you're working a case with a bad guy and you're putting together a cumulative case, you have days where you're like, yeah, I'm this I'm 99% sure this is our guy. And then something comes up and you're like, well, I'm probably 75%, but I still think he's the guy. Uh, and then, you know, you, so you go back and forth. You have an ebb and flow of certainty related to the guy you're working based on what other things you learn about others' potential suspects, let's say. Same kind of thing happens for me here. I was kind of got more and more certain as I, and then I finally got to the point where I was like, what am I, what am I waiting for? And I remember having this conversation with Susie and my wife, just, you know, like, I think this is re reliable. Um, I still don't understand what, why Jesus would to die on a cross. So I spent a lot of time initially 
just testing the gospels without really even listening to what the gospel was. In other words, the, the gospel of salvation. Uh, that, I, I, I wasn't going to listen to that until I first determined that the, the, the gospels were telling me something true about Jesus. And so that's where I was for a long time is just uh, waiting. to. And, and I always say that you can have certainty that the gospels are telling you the truth about Jesus and still not be a Christian. You just have belief that. Um, but when you start reading the, uh, the, the New Testament to see what it says about you instead of what it says about Jesus, that's when you start to turn corners, because now you realize that uh, you're in need of a savior. And um, th- of course, I knew there was a savior based on the, the work I had done in the Gospels. So that's where I, that I can remember where I was when I first realized that the New Testament was talking about me. You know, I think I was, was reading through, I remember I was in a city right next to ours. I was parked next to a school, long chain link fence next to a school. I was on a perimeter of a surveillance. And I remember I was reading uh, from Romans all the way through the end of first Corinthians and realizing, wow, you know, um, all that was telling me the truth about my own uh, fallen nature, the natural man versus spiritual man, all those things really started to feel like they were very personal to me. And, and that's where I started to make decisions about and started to understand what my need was for a savior. Um, but that was well after I had tested the gospels and, and really thought they were telling me this guy, Jesus of Nazareth was not mythology. He was not an invention. He was not a lie. Um, he was a historical figure. The things that were recorded in the gospels were actually true, but you could get to that point. You could read all that and still not necessarily, you know, the demons believe, but doesn't mean they're saved. So I was in that position of belief that it's not until you start reading about what the gospels say about you, that you move from belief that to belief in. And that's really the step that I had to take to become a Christian. That's awesome. And I felt some things that you were saying kind of similar to my own story, which was um, when I was in the factory, it was a dead end job and I had hours of time and I went from a place of you know, being a very lukewarm Christian, I didn't really care very much about it, if I'm being 100% honest. And uh, I moved into like a place of surrender and belief because at that factory, I hated it so much, but I tore through an audiobook version of the Bible and I got through that entire Bible in a month. And that was God ordained, I believe, because that is what made me have a passion for the scriptures and for teaching people and helping people understand. And so that's why P40 Ministries uh, ended up how that's kind of the origin story, sort of. But, um, you know, you came into this belief and then you went to seminary, right? <laughs> Became a youth pastor. Yeah. Well, I was just following my own kids. And as they got older, you know, I was they asked me to I was sitting with my kids a lot of times in, in children's ministry because when my kids were young, you know, we did, they were like eight and six and we'd never been to church. Very new experience. Um, and here they were being separated from us in this children's ministry and they were having none of it. You know, they, they were not as enthusiastic about doing that as you might expect. Um, so it, it became a situation where we, for just for practical reasons, we would sit in their children's like you know either one or the other of us would sometimes unless we could leave them and it wasn't very often they were comfortable being left they would rather be in the adult church with us but we really felt like hey they should probably be with their age group um i'm not sure how i feel about that today but that back then you know we were so you end up sitting in in if you sit long enough i always tell people if you sit long enough in children's ministry with your kids someone's going to ask you to teach in children's ministry and we had a we were in a huge church that needed teachers 
And so we, we jumped in, even though we knew nothing, uh, but they had, you know, like weekly lesson plans and all we had to be was a few minutes ahead of, you know, a few steps ahead of the kids. And that's about all we were. But at some point um, I was able to enter, there was a program available. This is back before there were a lot of remote programs, you know, like there wasn't a lot of, it was kind of at the infancy of the internet and there, there wasn't, you had to go to class. So I had to find, a, I found a local seminary um, that I could, was about 30 miles away that I could get to. And uh, slowly over seven years worked through a seminary degree. And by that time, my kids were like in high school. So we were, uh, I became a high school pastor. And then uh, once they were older, we uh, launched a church and I had that until I wrote for Cold Case. And uh, now my kids were already grown by that point. Um, and so a lot of it was just, I always try to encourage people that if you're interested in, in scripture and you've got kids, well, you know, it's amazing what that journey will look like if you'll just hop in and start serving with your kids ministry before you know it, at some point, you're gonna be, you know, probably leading your kids, which you already are uh, if you're a parent, but it was kind of neat to do that in, in youth ministry. I felt like that was a privilege to be able to do that with them. And you know, it all comes back to this whole authority with Christ. You know, my story, your story, both of them. Jim, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your story with us. I think it was awesome and great. And um, I know that your your books have touched many people. I know um, a few people who have said that uh, they've read Cold Case Christianity and it's been very meaningful to them. So, And also Person of Interest. So if you guys are interested in that, you can find Jay Warner Wallace's book on Amazon and also Barnes and Noble and where else can they find it? Yeah, pretty much everywhere. Personofinterestbook.com is where we kind of start. And we've got a bunch of, like, and what we really want to do is, is provide some materials so people can teach the content. So if you purchase the book, make sure you go back to personofinterestbook.com because we've got PowerPoints, we've got Bible inserts, a bunch, a bunch of videos that'll show you how we've been teaching it. So you can kind of learn how to teach the material to others. Awesome. And I'll drop a link to that in the bio of this podcast episode. But friends and faithful listeners, thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Happy listening and God bless.